Welcome to Squad, the leadership and high performance podcast that aims to help you change your game through inspirational stories and insights from some of the most fascinating people around. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by a man with a simply amazing story. An international athlete, TV presenter, pundit, commentator, and high performance coach. Today's guest today, uh, today's guest made his international athletics debut in the 1998 World Championships, reaching the 400 meter final and winning a silver medal in the 4x400 meter relay. By the time he'd retired, his trophy cabinet boasted world indoor and European titles, an 800 meter world record at the Paralympic Athens Games, and the ultimate prize, a gold medal at the 2006 World Championships. This ensuring he'd won every possible major title in Olympic athletics. Welcome to the Squad Podcast, Danny Crates. Hey, how you doing? Very well, thanks, Danny. Very well. Um, where are you today? I am sitting in my office stroke shed in the garden, like many people making do with the world we find ourselves in and finding any little space of quietness to be able to conduct business while children are indoors uh, doing homeschooling. It's, uh, it's, it's a model for everyone. And you, you just moved house recently as well, haven't you? And, and had a, a, a young, young baby. Yeah, we did everything during um, lockdown. Not, not everything. Like we, Mrs. was already pregnant as it started. But um, we, we have moved house during lockdown, had a baby. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a bit, it's been, a, it's been fun. We've been busy, uh, but we, we're settled now. And I've got my little space in the garden. I always wanted uh, my office space. Although sadly, because the kids are homeschooling, it's got a second desk at the back now, and I usually have a child in here moaning about the work they're doing at the same time. But. <laughs> I think that's something we could all relate to, and I certainly can myself. Um, so, Danny, that was an intro which I succinctly composed from what I could have got on um, for a lot longer. Um, it's an incredible journey that you that you've gone through to get to this point, um, and obviously your athletics career is outstanding, but. Where did it all start? I think first of all, your, your intro was probably as exhausting as one of the 800 metres I used to run in. So <laughs> you've done well with that and to get through it. Um, I, I think I've had multiple starts, I think. like So like many, like well, not like many, but but sport is my passion. And, uh, and not watching, but doing. So I've never been a follower. I've never followed football, rugby, you know, athletics. I have to a certain degree, but not fanatically. Um, it's always been about being out there and doing it. Uh, for me, my school reports, I wrote an autobiography in 2012. We was going back through the school reports and it was quite funny because as we was reading them, it pretty much everything said if Danny could do his maths lesson, his English lesson, his history lesson outside on the field, he would, he would achieve so much more. Um, it was always about PE for me uh, and always about sport. So I um, started, like most people, I always ask this when I work in schools, been working in schools for over 20 years it's where I started my speaking career um, and I always ask the students the same thing if you think about the most famous person you can think of i.e famous stroke successful not just famous so footballers musicians artists um, you know tv uh, presenters films whatever think of someone who's really famous but a successful famous not uh, an influencer famous and then you ask the question, where do you think they first started and got the passion? And 99.9% .9 of the time, it would always be the same, be it David Beckham, be it a 
a Roger Federer beer, an Andy Murray beer, a Phelps, in, you know, it doesn't matter who that beer, Dell, it, it doesn't matter. Most of them, they first get their passion in school. They, you know, they're first introduced to things in school. And I was the same, first introduced to athletics, rugby, football, through PE, eventually playing in the school teams. And then the PE teachers saying, Dan, you know, you're quite good at this. Have you thought about joining your local club? And then I left, you know, I, so I played rugby at school and then I joined my local rugby club, which is Thurrock. I ran for the school and then I joined Thurrock Harriers. So, and it was that, and it, it was that inspiration from those people. That was that, that was, the, that was the introduction to, I think. And actually I mentioned it and I said about the autobiography um, in 2012, when I was writing that and I actually did the launch of the autobiography. So I had, a, I had the publicists and all that. And they, and at the time it was, it was around the 2012 games and, and they said, like, you know, the way this normally works, Dan, it's what it is, is we'll, we'll hire a hotel suite in London, champagne reception, get a few VIPs in, try and get a few members of the press, get some photos, swanky book launch. And I just went, nah, 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 nah. I went, Burrock Rugby Club, 200 mates and an open bar like that. And that's what we did. But in amongst all that, and in amongst all that was all my really good friends. And there was people that had been there for me all the way through my life, through all the tough times. And so friends, but people that had been key, pivotal decision makers in my life. And there was, I had two people at my book launch and it was my primary school PE teachers, Mr. Davis and Mr. Richards. And for me, that was just, it helped those attached to the rugby club as well. But it, for me, it was like, wow. You know, these are the people that introduced me to rugby and athletics. And here they are at my book launch. Like, if it wasn't for them, I would never have engaged in the sport in the first place. And then, of course, when I went to secondary school, the same thing happened there with my PE teachers there. They were the ones that, A, got me out of detention sometimes if we had a rugby match on that night um, and just kept me inspired. So that was the start. But then there was the second start. And the second start came... At the age of 21, I was traveling in Australia, had a car crash. And then uh, after a period of rehabilitation in Australia, coming back to UK, a period of uncertainty in my life where I just didn't know why, where I was going, what I was going to do. Every day was just basically wake up. You know, I wasn't working. I was in a bit of trauma. I wasn't really dealing with stuff. That went on for about six months. And then I made the decision after six months to go back to the rugby club. And that for me was the, the definitive moment really, because I didn't go back to play. I went back to train. So I started training again with all my old rugby mates and they were nurturing and supportive of me. And so initially it was just about getting fit and being part of the social side that goes with rugby. But after a period, I wanted more. I wanted to play again. And, I, and with their support and guidance, I trained and trained and trained. And, and almost a year to the day of my accident, I stepped out in the park and I played my first game of full contact, 15 aside, able-bodied rugby. And Farrock's a big club. So it, it was a decent level as well, stepped out for their third team. And that was the start of a new rugby career. Uh, before the accident, I played representative rugby. I played for the East of England. I had the dreams and aspirations of being a professional. I had the talent to potentially take on a rugby career or semi-professional career it would have been in those days. Um, but probably didn't have the termination and the drive that you need to be successful. And I'm sure we'll come on to that element of performance later. But I had that, but, um, but for me, it was about just doing what I loved. 
So I was back into the folds of rugby again and just playing rugby week in, week out, loving it. I went back to Australia. Scuba diving was something I'd learned to do um, before my accident. I went back to Australia and I trained as a scuba diving instructor and became as the only known one-armed instructor in the world at the time. There may have been other people out there, but I was a known one. And I worked on the Barrier Reef teaching people to scuba dive. As jobs go, you, you can't ask for much more than that. I'm on a boat or a beach somewhere working on the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, I came back to the UK, uh, had, a, had a short period where I had, a, I had a dive school in Piccadilly in London, which um, is probably not the greatest business sense you'll ever get. Opening a dive school in Piccadilly didn't end well. Um, and then I, and I've worked teaching people around the world to scuba dive, um, worked for a disability charity called the Scuba Trust, working with people with disabilities, getting them into the water. Had a stint as a shark display diver. Uh, that was pretty cool working with sharks every day um, in a shark tank, uh, swimming around with 20 sharks, showing the general public that sharks are not dangerous animals. To this day, not convinced that the guy with the one arm is the best advert for that, but we, we had a bit of fun. And, and then eventually the, the, the second start, proper start in my life came. And that was, I met some athletes that had competed at the 96th Atlanta Games, some Paralympians. And two th one, thing, one thing happened, really, the, the passion was ignited, the dream. I'd, I'd been an athlete when I was younger, and I just thought two, th two things I realised. One was, wow, man, I, I want to have a go at this. And it's not that you can just be a Paralympian, right? You can't just say, hey, I've lost an arm, I want to be a Paralympian, because um, the British Paralympic team is one of the best in the world, and, and Paralympics is such a high level. But I met some people that have been there and I thought, do you know what? I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to, I'm going to give athletics a go again and see if I can get to the levels these, these people are at. You know, they've been to the games. Um, and, and, the big, and the second thing, the biggest thing for me was I'd, I'd spent a couple of years after my accident running away from anything that had the label disability. So any kind, anything that had disability, I wasn't interested. It was purely about being able-bodied. But actually what I've realized for the first time that not everybody with a disability is disabled. Just because you've got something that doesn't necessarily work properly or you've got coordination issues or, you know, anything wrong with you, it doesn't mean you're disabled in your mind. You can still have the drive, the passion and everything else that everybody's got, if not more. And I, and I suddenly realized that and it woke me up and I was like, oh, wow, man, Paralympians are not you know, give it a go, disabled people. These are people that are driven and passionate and they work hard with a dream and an aspiration and they, some of them win. And when they win, it's, you know, it's the top of the world. But when they don't win, it, it, it just breaks them down. It's everything the sport is. And that's when that, that second sort of start was. And that was the, that was the start that I in, ended up becoming known for because it was the world of athletics. So what was it then that... What was the transformation from rugby to athletics? I mean, they're two fundamentally different sports, generally speaking, involving two fundamentally different types of individual physically as much as uh, anything else. So what was the transition? What, what, what drove you to move from one elite, you know, sport to another? It was quite strange, actually, because so, so when I played the first game of rugby, there was these athletes that I've met were part of an amputee group, like group, but they were, they, they was a Paralympic amputee group. Like, so they used to meet once a month. 
they're all in their own individual areas around the country in their own training groups once a month they come together and they would have these squad weekends like elite squad weekends and the, the person that ran that a guy by the name of peter arnott he he had seen when i played my first game of rugby it was on rugby special john inverdale and he had read some stuff as well and, and you know it became apparent that I, w- I was a track and field athlete once as well so it was all there and he, he, he phoned me up and he didn't say like hey dan you can be a paralympian it was just like look we're forever building the teams, you know, and for every person that makes it to the Paralympics, you need the pyramid behind them as well. So it's not like he's saying this to me, but it's how it works, right? For everyone that gets there, you need everybody else coming through as well. And some make it, some don't. So he was building a team, a strong amputee base so that we could get the very best at the top. And he just said, have you ever thought about, you know, giving it a go? And But I was, I'm a team player. I, I enjoy being part of a team. And I, and I was just like, not really mate i did athletics once before and, and you know i'm a rugby man i said i play rugby in essex i you know after a match we hang upside down from a railing and drink guinness for our nostrils do you do that at the end of a race and he's like no i'm not interested then and that's pretty much how it went and then every now and again he would just touch base and he just see just see he was very passionate and driven and you know and to some people he was ex-military you know that and he was that stance and and some people just didn't didn't warm to him but that kind of person i do right he's very pushy very driven and, and every now and again just phone me up just say just touching base down see how you're getting on you know any more thoughts you know got a squad weekend coming up in a couple of weeks you fancy it just come along no pressure see if me and i'm just like look i told you i told you a hundred times man i'm not interested and i was actually at some very good friends of mine from the rugby club i was at a new year's eve type do of theirs around their house i used to always be around the house and um, I was around the house um, back in the day after they'd done one of the booze runs to France, generally. Um, so we was around there and my mobile phone rang and, um, it, and it hit my friend John's wife, Sally, answered, had the phone there and she went, oh, Dan, your phone's ringing. And I, I saw it and it was Peter Arnott. And I went, do not answer that phone like that. So she did what every woman would do, right? She picked it up, pressed the green button and went, I'll just pass him over. Like that and gave me the phone but I, I was I was well and truly oiled by this stage so I just said look I'll do you a favor I said I'll, I'll come to your squad weekend I'll tell you I don't like athletics and then you leave me alone right and I went to the squad weekend and that's when I met the athletes and that's when my eyes were opened um and it, and it was as you know it's one of those chance things if she hadn't answered that phone I may never have gone um but the transition was really strange because I come from a, a team sport and then going into an individual sport is very difficult and very different. But I, I, I went into it with the same mindset. I've always gone into anything in life. And that is what's the worst that can happen. So my thought process when I eventually said, well, I'm going to give this a go. Right. So I used to run for thorough carriers anyway. So I'm just going to go back to thorough carriers and I'm going to give it a go. What's the worst that will happen? The worst that will happen is after six months, I'll go, do you know what? It's not doing it for me, athletics. I prefer the rugby route. So I'll go back to my rugby. But when I go back to my rugby, I'll be fitter, faster, stronger because I've concentrated on training for the last six months. And that was my mindset. So, but I went into athletics and got the bug and got hooked and could see the progression. And I could, and I think with individual sport, that's, you get that where you're, you are, completely accountable for everything you do and responsible for your actions and, and that really worked for me you know I, it was it was only me out there so if I had a bad day it was me if I had a good day it was me um, and, and I, it just progressed from there but 
but that mindset of what's the worst that can happen is what I've done with everything business uh, with the athletics switching from one event to the other going from four to the eight so I switch from the four to the eight. what's the worst that's going to happen and the worst that happens it doesn't work but you'll always learn something there's always something you can glean from it when you go back picking up from the um uh, you know when you attended that training camp and you, you went there um you know albeit when you were uh oiled in saying that you're going to go there to use your expression when you got to that that training camp what did you find i found what i didn't expect because what i didn't find was a load of people with disabilities what i found was a load of athletes that trained bloody hard and and really was passionate about what they and there was an athlete there uh, a 400 meter run and 400 was my event as well I, or the one i eventually did but i liked the 400 i think it's because the rugby right the 400 is seen to be the toughest event on the track the four and the ar uh, although every event is tough in its own way but people perceive the four and the eight to be the tough ones so if you're going to do an event in your rugby player go for the, the four right and there was a 400 meter runner there a guy by the name of john pickup and he came fourth in the Atlanta Games. And um, and he, you know, I saw how, yeah, not broken, he wasn't broken by it, but frustrated he was, he just missed out on the medal. Um, I, and that's what I saw. There was a lot of leg amputee sprinters, um, arm amputee 400 meter runner. There was a couple of throwers used to go there. Um, and I just saw these people that were driven, passionate, motivated, and it wasn't what I expected. And that's what hooked me in. It was like, wow, and they were fit, you know, physically fit. And I thought, I want a bit of this. And that is, and the professionalism that went with it. And that, it was that, it was that that enticed me to give it a go. When you were there, um, and, and, you know, in all the stages up and in your life until that point um, where athletics and, and sport was, um, is concerned, you would inevitably have seen a lot of high performance. What does high performance look like to you? For me, high performance is about, it's about the journey to be the best version of yourself that you can be. So it's, it's every day trying to be better than you was the day before. It's never settling for what you did yesterday. It's always about how can I improve? What can I learn? What can I change? Never being scared to change. Never being scared to try something different. Always stepping outside your comfort zone. Um, and I think sport is brilliant for showing us this because you'll never, you'll never see a, a track athlete. I, I'll use track athletics. I know not everyone's into track athletics, but it's my, it's my sport. It's the easiest one for me to talk about. But you'll never see a track athlete break the world record and win the Olympic medal in the same race, right? Be interviewed at the end. And the interviewer goes, wow, man, you smashed your record and you won the gold medal. You must be, you know, over the moon. Generally, the athlete will always come out and go, oh, it's amazing. Yeah, man, wow. Although I stumbled at the start. There's, there's always something. And we are, we're brilliant at trying to find that something. And that's what we do. And because we always know there's always improvement. And actually, if you don't keep moving forward, somebody else is, is working towards it and somebody else is going to go past you. And for me, that is what high performance is. It's every day trying to be better than you could the day before. Every day trying to do something different and also learning from people. I, I When I first started Paralympic sport, so that, that, that group that I, I trained with, 
I was one of the first. I actually, and this was through another encounter with uh, somebody as well. There's, there's key people in my life, or many key people in my life. Another one was a physio by the name of um, Kevin Lidlow. But quite early on in my athletics career, I was training at Thorough Carriers. Um, and what I wanted to do, though, was I thought the Paralympic movement is quite a newish movement at the time um, in terms of its professionalism. And actually, if you want to be the best, learn from the best, surround yourself with the best people. So I didn't train with Paralympic athletes. I trained with Olympic athletes. So very early on in my career, I trained. So I trained with Donna Fraser, who came fourth in the big Kathy Freeman 400 meter race, the Sydney, the big Sydney race. Uh, the one where the Australian Aboriginal girl won the, won the final, which is one of the biggest Olympic moments in history. And she was fourth in that race. And, um, and, and her coach, A.O. Falola, who became my coach. But I was introduced to them by my physio at the rugby club, who used to look after a load of athletes as well, a guy by the name of Kevin Lidlow. And he introduced me to Kevin. Uh, and Kevin introduced me to A.O., sorry. And, it, and he basically just said, look, you know, good friend of mine, Danny, ex-rugby boy, now doing athletics, could really do a bit of support. You know, he's got this ambition to go to Sydney. And Ao at the time, being the person he was, he he didn't take me on straight away. He could see that I wasn't ready, and so he sat down, had a chat, me introduced me to Donna. Um, and why would he take me on? I'm, I'm a loudmouth Essex boy, and in his hand, you know, in his in his hands, he has one of the top female British athletes in the world. He's not going to bring some idiot Essex boy in to mess up her career. He wants to know if he's bringing a, a training partner in. A, I've got to bring something. I'm not, I'm not just there to be helped. I've got to bring something to the party. And B, I've got to come with the right attitude and mindset. So he he had a good chat with me and gave me loads of advice, uh, as he always did. A, he had time for everybody. Uh, bless him, he sadly passed away a few years ago, but he, he always had time for everybody. And um, he gave me loads of it. And he said, like, well, when you've done X, Y, and Z, come back and we'll have a conversation about, you know, where we go next. And I did exactly what he said. And uh, I came back and I went, Ayo, I've done exactly what he told me, X, Y, and Z. Uh, where do we go now? He said, well, you, you proved it, right? So come and join the squad. And I went and joined his squad. So and from that moment, I was training with Donna and some of the other athletes in the group. But it wasn't just them, because we'd go to like, America and train for eight weeks. The whole British squad would be out in America training around April time every year. And then amongst there, you'd be around you'd be around Darren Campbell, Linford Christie, all these athletes, you know, Mark Richardson, Derek Redmond, they're all out there. You and Thomas, you know, everyone's out there training at different places and you've just got all these people around you and, and you're learning from, it wasn't just the Brits, the rest of the world is out there as well. You've got all the Americans out there, you've got all the Europeans training out there. We've got South Africa in January and train there. And, and it's and not just the athletes, you've got the coaches as well. So all these athletes have got their coaches with them. So, my coach was learning from them as well and I'm learning from and it's, and that's what I wanted to do and I, I never wanted my peers so for me the peers would be the British athletics team right the the, the, the ones that race able body I never wanted my peers to see me as a disability athlete I wanted them to see me as an athlete first and foremost so that I, I needed them to know that I trained as hard as they did for me that was so important that they knew that and the only way they could find that was because I trained with them. So, and they knew that, they saw it. And I became, to them, I was just an athlete. I was never an athlete, I was just an athlete. Um, and, and that was really important. And, um, and for me, that was what high performance is all about. It's about continuously learning, continuously improving. It's about making mistakes, you have to make mistakes. Um, 
it's about never giving up it's about overcoming hurdles it's it's it is about that that's what drives people and it's about never giving up because you only got to look um, in life any anyone that's successful you're never going to find a successful person in the music industry film industry business sport that actually goes do you know what it's such an easy journey man everyone should do this it's a it's 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 a doddle right you've been a millionaire i did it in five weeks it's a doddle the only people that tell you how easy it is to make money are the ones that are trying to sell you stuff on the internet and i always think like if it's that easy, why are you trying to sell me stuff? You should be in the Caribbean somewhere, right? <laughs> Living on your yacht, not trying to flog me a course for 50 quid. Um, but, but anyone who's done it knows that it's not easy. Um, but on that journey, we lose a lot of people. There's a lot of people that will step back. Um, you know, for, I think for every successful person, there's 10 that could have been better. Uh, but 10 are lost because of circumstance. I'm sorry, some are lost because of circumstance but a lot of lost because when it gets tough, they give up and everybody's got one of their mates, right? One of their mates will tell you in the pub what they could have been till they're blue in the face. Oh, you know that business that sold for 45 billion? I had that idea. I had that idea when I was at school. I was going to do that. I wish I'd done that. Premiership football. I used to play against that guy. I was much better than him, but you know, I found, I found girls and cigarettes and drink and you know, I couldn't be bothered to train and I never wanted to be like that. I've always wanted to be the guy that tried to be. Uh, and I think that is about performance, really, isn't it? It's, it's the person that tried to be, you know, um, not the person that says I could have been. I gave it a go and I learned a lot along the way. And, um, and, that, and that was, that's the mindset I've always had. Give it a go, see what you can learn uh, and constantly try and improve. There's a lot of talk um, at the moment um, within any sector around collaboration um, which I think has been heightened over the last 12 months. There's also a lot of talk as a result of that collaboration around surrounding yourself with the right people. And it sounds to me as though from your, your, you know, your experience, that is exactly what you did. You made conscious decisions to put yourself in an environment where um, you knew it was going to benefit you, but you also mentioning you know, what you said before, it needed to be symbiotic. It needed to be that you also contributed to the party. So how important is it that you surround yourself with the right people? Because putting yourself in a pot of people where you can see their high performance is one thing. But identifying those that you know are going to be helpful to you is something else, isn't it? It's really important because I think there's a, there's a percentage of people that would surround themselves with people that they are better than so they can feel better about themselves right yeah. actually you surround yourself with people that are almost better than you that you can learn from but you bring in some of yourself i mean for me that would be a rule of business i mean you if you're sitting at the top of a business you surround yourself with people that can do the different elements of the business better than you can and then then why wouldn't you right if you're in that position to hire people you hire people that do their part of the job better than you can and, and for sport, it, you go in and you surround yourself. With, so when and, and Donna wasn't my only training partner, so I trained with multiple multiple um, athletes in the group. But when I look at the 800 meters with me and Donna, I'm uh, sorry, the 400 meters with me and Donna, because that's when I first joined. Donna was physically or still is physically faster than I ever was. So I didn't need speed like Donna had speed. So I couldn't bring speed. She's faster than me. But what I had was speed endurance strength 
So I could kind of keep going for longer. That was my attribute. So in those tough sessions, especially in uh, you know the, the arduous sessions we used to do, building up our stamina, our endurance, our strength, all through the winter, he needed somebody that, that Donna could work, Donna could latch onto in the sessions that would sort of tow her along a bit. I fitted that bracket. And of course, I was then able to commit to being a full-time athlete as well. Whereas some other people can't because they've got jobs and stuff like that. So, but I could commit to being an athlete by this stage. I was a funded athlete, so I could actually make that commitment. So it worked. But Donna was faster than me, which meant when we were doing speed-based training, I could then latch on to Donna. I had, I had somebody to chase down the track, so I could work with her. But also what Donna had that I didn't have, which is what some Paralympians, most Paralympians miss out on, is the apprenticeship of sport. So a lot of Paralympians, you acquire an injury and you suddenly get thrust into sport at a later stage in your life, like I did. Or you, you know, they, they find themselves in a category within Paralympic sport and they are slightly less disabled than others and they, they just dominate. And we see that sometimes in some of the categories, not all, but some of the categories in Paralympic sport, just because there's not the numbers coming through. Um, but in a, a normal sport, able-bodied sport, I don't use the word normal, I don't mean that, but in able-bodied sport, they do an apprenticeship, they're junior athletes. So they come through the junior ranks, which is, you know, fun and they have a laugh. Then they go into like the under 20s, the under 23s. And as they start progressing up and they start going into these senior ranks, you know, they're young athletes in a senior rank, but they have to be mentored, they're mentored by and they have to behave like senior athletes. And they've done an apprenticeship really on how to behave as an athlete. And a lot of athletes don't get that. Well, I got that because I went and trained with Olympic athletes that have been through that journey. They taught me not about how to train like an athlete, but how to behave like an athlete. Because you've got to have both things together. It's not just about doing the job. I think that, and that's the high performance thing as well. It's the mindset. So I talk about, it was about changing from somebody that trained like an athlete to becoming an athlete. When I became an athlete, all encompassing that's when I started to progress and that's what I learned from surrounding myself with other athletes how to how to how to act how to behave how to prepare for events no one can teach you how to prepare for an event the people who've been there seen it done it can sure as hell help you a lot better than anyone else can I am um, I want to bring you to to two significant moments in um in your athletics career which I, i've picked up on from you know whilst i was sort of you know looking back at, at that career and one of those is the 2006 world championships but he won that girl that, that gold medal and, and you say that for you was a culmination of a lifetime's work and ambition i'm i'm really interested to know what the driving force was you know that that's quite a strong thing to say it's a culmination of a lifetime's work and, and ambition what was the driving force that that made that happen that made it so that you, that's what you wanted that was clearly something that you set out to achieve what was the driving force behind all of that I mean, there's a couple so one is the, the the desire to be the best that you can be and 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 in sport that comes as being the best in the world sometimes right so I was already I'd already won the Paralympics I was a European champion I was a world record holder but there's one thing I didn't have and that was the world championship medal 
I was a silver medalist in 1998 in, in, in the relay, not in, in the individual. I was eighth in the individual, 400. Um, and then in 2002, in the World Athletics Championships, that was in my transition year. That was when I was transitioning from the 400 to the 800. So the, the 2002 World Athletics Championships in Lille was um, my first international 800 metres. And I came fourth in that race, which is pretty cool for your first, because the 800 is not just about brute strength, speed and ignorance. It's very, very tactical. Um, and actually, that's where the experienced athletes see the new person come in and just go, yeah, we're going to have some fun with you today. <laughs> we can see you're all excited. Let's, let's burn you out. Let's let you go off to the front for a bit and then we'll just chew you up a bit later. And um, and that was my first international. I came fourth, pretty cool, right? And I actually only really, lo I lost the silver because I challenged. Um, if I'd just sat pretty, I may have come away with a silver medal in that one. But I challenged for the gold and by challenging for the gold, just burned up everything and, and ended up getting chewed up and spat out, but still came fourth. But I still had the 400 to go and the 400 was was you know my event that was the one i was i was a funded athlete to run 400 meters um so i still had the 400 meters that was one i was expected to do well in um and i came fourth in the 400 I didn't have a great race and for me that was devastating um i came back with two fourth places i'd never not medaled at a major championships before and of course in sport we're not we're not funded on what we did years ago we're funded on what we can do so then the sport starts looking at you going, right, you're not young, Dan, let's be honest, right? You're well in your 20s now, coming up to your 30s. So do we invest in you for the future? Are you going to go to Athens and potentially Beijing? Or do we invest in the young athletes coming through? You know, some of them may not have won medals, but they're 15, 16. They've got whole careers ahead of them. And, and I went through, I ended up getting taken off funding for a period of time. It was really tough for me. And I had questions asked of me as well. And, you know, you, you know, the question is, well, we love your coach. And man, is he a good coach, right? Um, but that doesn't always mean they're good for you. Just, you know, Usain Bolt's coach might not be a good coach for me. He wouldn't because, you know. So people ask me if AO was the coach for me. And, and, and I just categorically turned around and said, yes, 100%. We are, you know we're in this together and this is we get we're working towards something and we'll get there and um so that was the toughest so when i went to 2006 that was my third world championships so by that stage i had every major title but it was the one was missing was the world athletics championships and also i knew deep down potentially by the time we got to another cycle which would have been 2010 you know, I might not be an international athlete at that stage. This might be my last chance, especially because I knew I was in good shape. You know, the chance for an athlete to arrive at a championships in good shape, um, it doesn't happen very often. And, I, and in the build-up to it, I was in good shape. So it was my chance. Doesn't mean I was going to win it because I have to beat the other, you know, however many athletes also want to win it. But it was my chance. And, and that's why it was a culmination, really, because that was what brought everything together. That was the moment I could say I've, I've, I've achieved every level in athletics now um, and I've done it. Uh, and that's that's where it all sort of came together. This this takes us back then to your almost, you know, give it a go, you know, and what's the worst it can happen? Because you then you looked at that and went, I've now got to go for it. 
um, you know, uh, if you talk about that peak performance and even for that, and we've seen, you know, that um, the film was ready, the Eagle, I know it was a long time before before you got on the scene, but that film, which, and it taps into that funding, doesn't it? No, and, and there were periods in, in his life where, um, for most of it, so let's be honest, where there was no funding, I mean, and there was, you know, go as far as to say sneering and, and jeering. Yeah, yeah he, he was uh, ostracised, wasn't he? he was yeah, absolutely. But move forward a little bit and, you know, it's out, you know, the, the, the fall of control of obviously it's a completely different thing now, but nonetheless, it still is the same. Um, funding exists only if they think you've got a chance of doing it. Yes, sport is business, right? So my business was running. Um, so my, my business is to do the best I can on the track. But the people that support me, the lottery support that we had and, and, I, and the private sponsors that I had, they're, they're not just supporting me because I'm a nice guy, right? It, it helps if you get on with people, but that's not what they give me money for. Uh, they give me money because there's, you know, they're, they're investing in somebody that they believe is going to elevate the sport and, and bring the medals that the sport needs to enable the sport to move on. And, and that, that's your job, right? You, as an as an international athlete, I suppose in the you know you're almost you're an employee, you're an employee of the sport, and your job is to deliver, just as anybody is expected to deliver in business. Um, and it, and it is, but it is tough. It is really tough. But it, but then that does you know that that does test you as well, and that shows you how much you really want it. Because I had to keep I had to keep going when I didn't get because it's not just about the money. Money is one aspect. Um, uh, it, but it's it's the support that goes with it it's you know once the month once you off the funding you then you haven't got all the support networks that go with it the access to the physio and doctors and things like that it's a bit different if you've been injured but if it's under performance questions are asked and um if i look i think i was wrongly treated at that stage um when i look back but it was a very early stage in the funding processes and how they did stuff. And, um, you know, everyone was learning at that stage. So, uh, but my job was to go and prove them wrong. And I did that. That, that. that was the drive to prove them wrong, to prove that actually I could do this. I was, I was a worthy athlete of the funding. And that comes straight back then to your never give up. Um, yeah, yeah, just keep exactly. going. Yeah. So, so there, there, there's your driving force. Um, so look, You've achieved by this point everything, right? So we're now in 2006 at this point. Then on the horizons, Beijing 2008, where you were given the honour of carrying the, the British flag for the opening ceremony. Yeah. Tell us what happened. Well, it was, 2008 was a really strange year because we was, out, we was out training in South Africa in the sort of January period. Um, I was out there training. And, and it was a bit bonkers. I, I was, because as athletes, we keep, we diarise everything, right? So I've got diaries going all the way back, all my training sessions in. Um, so I, so we can look back. So there's another thing we do really well in sport, right? So in business, if things aren't going well, it's often like, oh man, that was a really bad day. We're having a really bad month at the minute, but don't worry, we'll get through it. We'll, we'll push through, we'll push through. Whereas in sport, what we do quite quickly is if things start going wrong, we start thinking, why is it going wrong? Like, let's have a look. So we can look back at a diary and think, well, what was I doing this time last year? Because last year I was on fire, right? So what am I, am I doing anything different this year? 
now I'm doing the same kind of program I was doing last year. So what's going on in my life? Is there any changing in my life that could be impacting my performance? Then you might go and see the doctors and they'll do, you know, they'll do all the blood tests, make sure there's no hidden viruses inside you that are just holding you back a little bit. And you look at you then you look at your mental performance, right? Have I got stuff going on back at home that might be impacting my training? You know, we start looking at all the different areas that could be impacting it. Sometimes you can't, there's nothing, there's no reason why we can't be at the best every day. Sometimes we're just having a bit of a but we um, you know, we start we looked at all that stuff and and when I think about it, if I think about how we always approached it really, it's like um so 2008. Yeah, so 2008 was sort of, so we have all that, so we have our diaries. And, and when I look back at my diaries, in 2008, I was on fire. Like, I was running faster than I'd ever run before. Um, so when I look back at my diaries from 2007, even 2004, so in 2008, I was faster than 2004. And my coach, we was in the South Africa, I remember him. And he, we, I wasn't supposed to be fast at that time of the year. We, it was, it, although we was in the sun, we were supposed to be doing sort of winter-based training. And he was just saying, Dan, this is ridiculous. You, you are physically running too fast. Like, <laughs> and, and he was slowing me down. He was adding, he was adding reps onto my sessions to start slowing me down. My, my body was just ready to go, right? And then and then I came back and I suffered a series of injuries. So I went in to see, I had a I did a training session at the track one day, um, back was hurting, went into the physio, was on the physio bed, the physio was pulling me around a bit. And then the back just went into spasm. And, and, and after a number of scans and things like that, they, they found that I'd torn a disc in my spine and it had all sort of inflamed up. And then I came back from that. It wasn't too long. It's not as bad as it sounds, a torn disc. And um, I came back from that. Uh, and then I had calf problems. Then coming back from that, I had Achilles problems. And I actually was unable to run for five months. All I could do was um, cross-train. And that is probably the toughest time of my life terms of my sport going to the track every day and once again but this is high performance right so i go to the track every day and watch my training group out on the track well first of all i couldn't go to so i couldn't then go to the warm weather camp so they went off to america to train i couldn't go couldn't train um and then but then i go to, i began to the tracks and they're outside doing the sessions and I'd be inside on an exercise bike doing a similar session so still preparing my body to do the same stuff on a bike where they're out on a track or I might be in the swimming pool doing it with a, a flotation belt on so I could run in the pool um, or doing a weight session or something like that. But, and that was tough because as a runner, you just want to run, right? That, that's what we do. So rugby players play rugby, footballers play football, tennis players play tennis. And if we can't do what we want to do, we get the ump. So it was really <laughs> difficult for me. And, um, but I had to, I had to just, I had to keep believing that I would get back. I had to keep believing that I would go to Beijing and I had to believe that I'd defend the title. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, and, 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 and then, you know, when I look back, there's lots of things I would have changed about the interventions that we did to try and get me there. Cause that's hindsight. Right. So, uh, but eventually they got to a point where they could get me running again. It was really late in the game. Um, and it was it was very, very like it was 90% I wasn't going to go to Beijing. Um, and, and I still remember it to this day. We was at the uh it was at the squad weekend, it was the final squad weekend. Um, uh, when they, it's the only time they actually bring the whole 
350 odd athletes together and it's where they give you your kit and everything it's really exciting and you, you and they you'll go through like conference style events where you're getting all the information about the upcoming games and gala dinners and the photographs are done and the interviews are done it's all really exciting and, and it's normally where they announce the flag bearers as well and, and they didn't this one because you're amongst a number there's a number of you put in by your peers so your peers pick who they want to be the flag carrier and it's all put okay. in and then there'll be a list of a, a number, right? So then they'd vote on the number and then that's how you used to do it. And then, um, and I, I actually had a, there was a discussion had with me with Paralympics GB and uh, they just said, look, and basically they said, you, 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 we, there's your kit, but we're keeping your kit because, you know, we don't think you're gonna be going. And, and that absolutely broke me. Like, and and oh, this was in Birmingham. And I, and then when we was released on the Sunday afternoon to go home, I didn't go home. I went to the track at Birmingham and I put my trainers on and I just started running uh, around the grounds outside Alexandra Stadium. I just ran and I ran and I ran and I ran and I ran until I realized whatever pain, because it was my Achilles, it was a problem. Whatever pain I was feeling, I was running through it. Uh, and then the following week I went and raced and the week after that I raced again and I, I wasn't like I wasn't a, a Paralympic gold medal speed but I'd done enough to show that I was on my way back and actually then week on week I got better and better and stronger and stronger and it was all looking good and then something happened on the plane on the way out I went I got on an aeroplane running got off the other end with a tight Achilles again, went out for a jog that night. And then uh, when we got there just to loosen up and then something went tw twang in the calf again, and then struggled for the whole holding camp, which was in Macau in Hong Kong, China, Hong Kong. Um, and then uh, just struggled for the whole camp, couldn't run properly. You could just sort of hobble a bit and then then we had the honour of me carrying the flag, which was amazing, uh, to walk out in the stadium carrying the flag. And the, the actual, by that stage, you know, the ambition, I was still going to race. Everything was about me racing. I was there. And then, so I carried the flag at the opening ceremony, uh, one of the pinnacles of my career. And then the next day, I made a decision with the doctors. And I said, look, my finals, my, my race is in a week. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen, right? And the last thing I want to do is tear my calf muscle in a warm-up. I want to know that I can run. So we we made a decision. And what they did was they they anaesthetized me a little bit in my leg. And then we went off to the we went and found like the deepest, darkest corner of the athletes' village. Because you can't be seen, because all your competitors are in the same place, right? So you, your competitors are in the same food hall as you. They walk the same streets that you walk. It's a, it's a bonkers environment you're in. And so we went and found this little dark corner somewhere, did a bit of a warm up, stretched out, put out a bit, and just started to do a bit of running, a few strides, just to see what I was capable of. And, um, and then I was doing my very last one. And uh, I was just, and I wasn't sprinting, I was just striding. And just as I was easing down again, it went bang. And then just that was it, I knew straight away, it was over. Just remember to this day, just sat on a wall with the doctor and the physio. They called for someone to go and get like a golf buggy to come and get me. And then they come and pick me up, took me back to the village, to the, the British camp. 
I had a physio stayed with me all night that night. Um, so every every sort of couple of hours, they would. I was I was half asleep at the time. They'd take all the uh, they'd take the strapping off my leg, put new new ice packs on it, things like that, doing whatever they needed to do, massage it. And then the next day we went for scans, and then they they found the tear, not the tear I'd retorn, and then that was it. We knew it was over. And then, so I took a tough, I took a really tough decision. I said, right, well, I can't be here because there's a team of athletes that need to compete. And the last thing they need is someone like me, who's a senior athlete. There's a lot of young athletes that, you know, I've helped nurture as they've come through and I was the flag carrier and um, I just can't be here. It's not fair on them. It's not fair on me. So I left Beijing, flew home the next day. And, and I actually was flying back as my mum and dad was flying out. We sort of crossed in midair. Oh, no. Yeah. But I had the most surreal, the most surreal um, uh, moment. I was, I was taken to Beijing Airport and it was horrible. So basically one of the buses from the Athletes Village that, that do the runs to the airports and that, British team put me on the bus and I just, I was on a bus on my own, just sat on a bus going to Beijing Airport, one of the biggest airports in the world. And um, I was sitting in, and I couldn't walk around because uh, I was injured, so I had crutches or a crutch. And I was just sitting in Beijing Airport, feeling very sorry for myself. And I'd come across this person once before in my life, um, and I've met him. And it was the guy who used to play Victor Meldrew, Richard Humphrey Cerner. Right? So I've met him once before, and it is the most surreal moment in my life. I was just sitting in Beijing Airport, and, and to me, Victor Meldrew came walking towards me and went, you're like Dan, what are you doing here? Like that. And I just went, it was like, I have no idea like how that just happened. But and then we had a conversation and off you went. And um and I flew home. That was it. I've got it in my head, of course, and I'm sure others listening this down will be going to themselves, I don't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was just one of those moments, you know, you just go. Only, only he could have turned up at that moment in my life. So, <clears throat> mindful of time, um, could you explain what then happened when you got back? Because you've left everything that you've worked towards. And by the sounds of things, you know, when you're talking about resilience and endurance and never giving up, that was encapsulated in all of that, that story that you just told there. It must have been devastating, despite me seeing Victor, Victor, Victor Meldrew. Um, nonetheless, that was devastating. When you got back home and everybody was still there, how did you cope with that? What, what did you do? Well, there was a couple of things about, like, so, so ironically as well, like, so when I went, because you have to do your bit right, so when, so it was, everything was kept very secret, uh, no one knew, but I had to do, I had to make a statement, right, so I had to, I had to tell the BBC that I wasn't going to be racing. So they took me into the Bird's Nest Stadium to do an interview with the BBC to say that I was injured, I was going home. And ironically, cruel turn of fate. As I was doing my interview behind me, so I ran in a category called T46, arm amputee category. Most of my counterparts did the 1500 metres as well. I came from the 400 meter background. So I was a four and eight runner. I was only doing the eight in Beijing because the timing didn't match up. But most of my counterparts would do the eight, the 15, and sometimes the 5,000 as well, right? But generally the eight and the 15. 
as I was being interviewed, explaining why I wasn't now going to compete, behind me on the track was the men's T46 1500 meter final. So all my rival athletes were out there racing and I was doing an interview. And then of course I went home and while I was at home, my mum and dad was in Beijing in the Bird's Nest Stadium watching the men's 800 meter final, right? So, um, and then, uh, uh, but that sport, uh, and I just, the same mindset was, this is not defining me. I'm not the guy that, whose career ended in Beijing 2008. I'm the guy that came back. Because don't forget, we had London 2012 to aim for. That was always my ambition to race there. So it was the same as it ever before. Dash yourself off and, and come back. The thing that sport, sport was always taught me, nothing changes, really. So when you win, when you win in sport, you have, you have a good party afterwards, generally. The, my Athens party was notoriously amazing. Um, it was phenomenal. Um, but, you know, when you win, you have that fun, but very quickly, the, your coach and the sport itself is going, that's great, you won that medal, right? That was yesterday, though. Right, well, we do, we're preparing now for the next championship, right? But when you lose, your coach and your sport go, Dan, you know, that didn't go according to plan. Either you, you got injured, unfortunately, or you stuffed that race up royally, you, you know? Okay, learn from it, put it behind you, we move on. We start aiming for the next thing. It's always that. So with Beijing, it was a part of my life and it was about getting me fixed, ready to move me forward again. And, and, and that's what we did, just change the focus. The focus was on about getting fit again and getting back out on the track. And that's how I got through it. And I'm not saying it was, was easy. I'm not saying I didn't have really tough, low times um, coming off the back of that period, you know, the five months beforehand and getting so close to, to getting there. Uh, but at the time, I didn't know it was going to be my last Paralympics because London 2012 was the big draw. Um, so for me, it was about the next thing, prepare for the next thing. There's, um, there's a word that Gary Neville, um, ex-Man uh, United and an England player, obviously, um, used when he was asked a question of what it was like to play under Alex Ferguson amongst that elite team that, that he fostered over those years. And the word he used was relentless. Mm. And it sounds to me, from what you just said there, that that's almost a little bit like it was with, with you. So, you know, the way that you kind of got over that disappointment was just to get back in it again and it and whether you win or whether you knew, lose you're back on the horse you're back doing it all yeah. over again and that must be a coping mechanism to a certain extent as much as driving some you know the the, the performance levels it must also be a, a coping mechanism isn't it well it is i mean it's it's our it's our like when you're a runner it's your space it's your therapy it's you're out there you're doing what you you are good at what you love doing and and it's also about it is always about it is always about moving forward. It's like when, when you win, when you've won your medal, you don't, you don't just sit on that. It's about, well, what can I do next? How can I show the world? So when I, when I won in Athens, it was about proving that that wasn't one race. Cause of course, when you've won it, everybody wants to beat you now. So they want to, they want to get the title off you. So when I raced in the world cup in 2005, that was, 
in Manchester on a home track with all the athletes from the final of the, at the, what is it, the World Cup. So all the, all the finalists from Athens are there racing me. It's one year on. They want to beat me on my home track, right? I want to win on my home track. Came second in that race, stuffed it up. Um, but that is athletics, right? You're not going to win every time. But going back to the after Beijing, it, it was it was it's relentless is is. But I don't think you feel, it feels relentless when you're doing it because it's tough what we do and put ourselves through the ringer backwards every training session. But we love what we do, and I mean, I miss I miss so much that feeling of when when I think back of the stuff we could do, like the, the, the training sessions we could put our bodies through and what we used to be able to do day in, day out on that track. And, um, and you literally, you do a training session and sometimes you'd be in pieces on the floor, like absolutely in pieces. And then half an hour later, you're up and you're walking around, jogging around the track with your training partners saying goodbye and see you tomorrow, like that go home and carry on with your life doing your other stuff and and yet when you think about what we just did like if i did now not not even anywhere near the speed just the the, the session if i did the session that i'd done back then now i've been in bed for a week even if i could walk like it, it just and that that was the that that's one of the things as well is for me the moment i made the decision to retire it was that that the last race i did because you knew that the minute I crossed that finish line, I would never, ever, ever, ever in my life be that fit again. Just, and it doesn't mean I can't train and get fit again, but with my age, with my, you know, to, to that, the level I was at, and it's the time commitment I had, because I was a full-time professional athlete, I was able to train twice a day, five, six days a week, solid. And I knew that when I retired, I wouldn't be a professional athlete anymore. I'd have other things in my life and I wouldn't be able to train. So that was that was a really tough time for me, knowing that I would, you know, I would never be that fit again. And, and we are at a level of fitness that is beyond. And it's not because we're superhuman. It's just because we have the time to do it. We, you know, that is what we do for a living. We train. So how does that look now? So we, you know, we're. 2021 and now these days you're a, a commentator a, a tv presenter and a, and a high performance coach what um you know what are, what are you feeling now about the the you know the, the job that you do when you look at the other these athletes and obviously the last 12 months have been slightly different um, in terms of how you view that how does your are you enjoying the job you do what 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 satisfaction is that giving you in comparison to the satisfaction that being an elite athlete athlete gave you it's very different. I mean, I come at it with life's lessons now. So, of course, I would love to be like everyone. I'd love to be young and I'd love to go back to being an athlete again with all this, the knowledge I now have to use the knowledge I now have to be a better athlete back then. Um, I would love to because I don't think you'll ever find an athlete that will go. I ran my best race. I, I had faster races in me. I know that because I got injured when I was faster whether I've done it or not is a different matter because it's actually being able to and then doing it is two different things because a race is a race and it, there's a lot that goes into a race that can also go wrong in a race so but so I always believe I had a faster time in me um, which frustrates me but I, I, I love what I do now I love I, I have multiple streams as you mentioned so I 
I work, I'm a pundit on the sports. I love working on the sport. I love talking about the sport that I love. I love, I love being honest about the athletes. And that is the one thing for anyone who's ever seen me as a pundit will know I'm honest. And I, and the reason I do that, and I mean, the athletes, it's not that I'm brutal. It's not, but if an athlete is underperforming, they're underperforming. And that, what they don't need is someone to say, oh, it was amazing. And they really should have won that race. No, they shouldn't have won that race because they underperformed. They could have won the race if they'd done the right tactics or their preparation had been better, blah, blah, blah. And that's what a pundit does. A pundit has an honest look at, and, and that's what, um, and I always joke, because when I show my Sydney race or my events, uh, when I'm speaking at events, I actually show uh, the race, the 400 meters. And I came third in Sydney, uh, which people think is pretty cool, right? Bronze medal. But I made mistakes in that race. Um, and I actually lost the gold medal in Sydney. I, I didn't win the bronze, I actually lost the gold. Uh, and that was really tough for me to take. But that was just another driver. That was another motivator for me to come back from. But in the race, the commentator is Paul Dickinson. And then you have, um, off the back of it, you have John Ridgeon, four hurdler. Um, I know John, uh, and I've worked with him many times on different things. But he was the co-commentator, the pundit uh, kind of person on that event. And, um, he, and he absolutely pulled my race apart. But this is live, right? I've only literally just crossed the finish line. It's not like he's got hindsight of talking to me. It's an honest <laughs> reflection of what I delivered that day. And, it, and it, so in the slow-mo, after the commentators finished the race, I've come third, you know, commentators, you know, third medal for Danny Crates, blah, blah, blah. And then the co-commentator comes in and his job is to basically talk about the stuff that the viewer doesn't necessarily see, right? That's the co-commentator's job. So tell you stuff you might miss or tell you stuff you don't know about the person. So he's saying, you know, basically what I should have done and the fact that I was too slow out of the blocks, which left me too much work to do. And his, his words are like, he was strained and he was under pressure and it's just third place. And everyone in the audience, when I'm speaking at events and conferences, are like, and I always finish it up with like, you've got to love a commentator, right? And, um, but, but he was, it was true. It was a true reflection of the race. And I try to do the same thing now. I try to give a true reflection of the performance that the athletes do. Be it in the prediction of what they're going to do, and then be it in, you know, the analysis of what they do do. Uh, and I try to bring that because I think open and honest, being open and honest about their performance is what they are anyway. Like no good saying an athlete did well uh, when they didn't because they'll be at home crying in their room anyway because they stuffed up the Paralympic final. So there's no point saying they did well. They won't thank you for that. You know, you don't have to be rude or anything. It's just honesty. And I've tried to bring that. And then when I speak at conferences, uh, which has been, always been my kind of bread and butter i've done it for over 20 years i've worked all over the world um and i'm very passionate and i treat my conference speaking just like i do my athletics i want to be the best i want to be better than the speaker the year before i want to be better than the speaker the year after and the only way i can do that is by preparing making sure that my presentation is delivered exactly as the client wants it and it's professional it's as you know close to perfection as i can get it um, but I, I speak about all those lessons that I've learned and everything that I've taken from sport and business and, you know, how we put it all together to create the high performance, to, to create high performance in business, sport. Um, and then the same with the high performance business It's that is taking all my sport lessons with my business partners, science that sits behind it. And then creating these programs for businesses around understanding what high performance looks like. Um, 
Yes, we, I, there's multiple strands to what I do, but every every one of the strands is about being the best version that I can be. And I think that's that's just all we can be in life, right? So you don't have to be best, you don't have to be number one in the world. You don't have to be on the top of a podium anywhere. You just have to be the best version of yourself you can be in whatever you're trying to do, because that's how we're going to enjoy stuff. And I, and I think sort of to finish that, people have always asked me like, who inspires you? And and for me, it's always really simple. Yes, I looked up to Cochran and Ovette because I grew up watching them run the middle distance races. And back at the day when I was a younger youngster, I used to run the eight and the fifteen. But I didn't. I, did, I wanted to emulate them. I didn't want to be like them. I just wanted to be the best version of myself. But the people that have always inspired me and still do to this day are people that do things just because, for the love of. And we've all know people like that, right? So. They, going back to the school days and that there's people that trained even harder to make you know football they trained even harder than everybody else and then but they weren't even good enough to make the third team let alone the first team but they trained harder than everybody else they trained harder than the best player in the team in the first team but they did it because they loved it so much and they just they just wanted to be as good as they could possibly be or in athletics there's people that you know are never going to make it into the first choice for any of the events. They're kind of the, the filling people. We need all these people, but they train harder than everybody else. And they do it because they love the sport so much, but they're not doing it for any recognition. They're not doing it for a career. They're not doing it for fame and fortune. They're doing it for passion. And I think those people are where inspiration comes from because, you know, I was lucky. I was good at running and I, I and I got the opportunities to go and run. And then, you know, I, I would say that there's not many people agree with me, but anyone who likes running would. On a nice, warm, sunny day, there was no better in the world to be than sitting on an athletics track. The warmth, and especially when you're in fit and you know what you can do. Um, and I got those opportunities and I'm very grateful for them. Um, but some people, you know, they're, they're, they're still trying to do that, but they're, they're doing that on the way home from work you know, after putting in a 12 hour shift and it's snowing and they go to the track on their own because their training group's already finished and they just put in a session themselves just for their own well-being and their own fitness. And it's those that that's where inspiration comes from for me. Derek, the, the passion is absolutely running through and I can, you know, it's, it's, it's audible uh, quite literally. I've got two, uh, the three questions, actually, two very quick fire ones. What makes you happy? Um, I, I, I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in a setting kind of happiness, I love being anywhere in the water, ocean, um, those environments. I mean, I, someone asked me actually fairly recently to think of a moment where I was actually, you know, and there's many. I've got my children, of course, all those and, you know, but calm and content and a running, flowing on the track used to just when I was in a proper flow, when I just everything was working standing on the front of the dive boats, you know, just out on the ocean, stuff like that, being underwater. Around water is definitely for me. Uh, but, but predominantly, it's people. And that's what I find difficult now, because I love standing on the stage, speaking on big stages, but I, I like just as much going afterwards and then meeting everybody and having conversations with people. And that's, that's what's difficult. But I love being around people. Um, and, and I think, yeah, that, that's, that's what makes me happy. And what are you grateful for? Ooh, 
I think I'm grateful for just the opportunities that I've had um, because I think there's losing my arm. I didn't choose that. That just happened. Um, but with losing my arm, a lot of opportunities came my way. Um, opportunities to go and be a Paralympic athlete, to go and travel the world with the sport, to do what I did with that. Then everything that's come off the back of that would never have happened if I didn't lose my arm. But more than the opportunity it gave me, it changed uh, my mindset. Because when I talk about the rugby, so when, when I played rugby uh, into county level and things like that, I was, I was good enough. Some, a lot of those players went off and had semi-professional careers. And some of them still involved in rugby to this day as like performance directors and head coaches now where they've, they've played. And we're talking decent level clubs as well. Um, and I was, you know, I was as equal to some of those, those people, better than others and not as good as some of the others, but could have done similar career paths if I put my mind to it. But I never put my mind to it. I'd tell people, people knew how the talent I had, but I used to go training on a Tuesday, Thursday, have a few pints afterwards, go to the pub on a Friday and then expect to play rugby on a Saturday. Something happened after my accident. Something inside happened. And the thing that happened was I realised that talent is never enough. Yes, you have to have a talent to be really good at something. We can learn a lot, but you still have the initial talent there. Um, but that's not enough. It's the talent plus the hard work equals the success. That's the thing that I didn't get before that I got afterwards. The fact that when I went back to athletics, it was, well, I can run man. I can, you know, I can shift up and put in a decent time, but actually that a decent time is not going to win me a gold medal in the Paralympics. What it's going to win me a gold medal in the Paralympics is the talent and a decent time plus a load of hard work commitment. And the, and the hard work isn't just about the training as well. It was about changing. I had to change my lifestyle. I had to, you know, I changed my diet, my mindset. I had to make sure I was resting more. I, I missed, you know, I, I gave up. People call them sacrifices. I, you know, I sacrificed all the boys' holidays, going to their weddings, their children's birthdays. I missed it all. But they were life choices. I chose to live the life of an athlete. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I'm grateful for. That, that, that I had that, but mainly because... That I had that mindset, that shift in my mindset, the fact that, you, you know, if you want something, you've got to work for it. That doesn't mean you've got to grind yourself into the ground till you can't perform. It's about doing what you're prepared to do to get you to where you want to be to. Final question, which we always like to end our, our high performance podcast with. Um, what three non-negotiable characteristics must people buy into to work with you whether that's in a, a business context or a sporting context what what are the three non-negotiables i think you've 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 got to enjoy what you do you'll never find someone who's successful that hates what they do business the, the entrepreneurs love what they do right the business people they love creating they love sports people you start in sport with the passion you start with the love uh people from the arts they start with the love. They don't, they don't start with the number one single. They start, you know, all the people that sing, you know, when they're multi-millionaires and, you know, sold 450 million singles, 
the videos still come out of them when they were five years old singing in the school concerts, right? That starts with the passion. You've got to have the passion, the enjoyment. That, that is a non-negotiable because if you don't have it, you're not necessarily, it doesn't mean you can't be successful in different areas and business and that, but you still have a passion. You still got to want to do it because no one can, it's like you can't make a child do something they don't want to do, right? So you're not going to be able to do it either. So that's the first one. You have that. You've got to be prepared to step outside your comfort zone. You know, if, if it sounds really cliche, but if you keep doing the same thing, you get the same results. You've got to be prepared to step outside, push yourself, find out what you're truly capable of. And to be able to do that, you've got to be prepared to change sometimes. You've got to be prepared to make changes to see if it's going to make a difference. And then I think the third one, the non-negotiable, you've got to be accepting and prepared. The resilience side's got to come in. You've got to understand that if you want something, it ain't going to be easy, right? If you really want something, it's not going to be easy. Um, it doesn't mean it has to be catastrophically hard, you know, but it, sometimes it is. It's life, right? But it doesn't have to be, and sometimes it isn't. But there is going to be setbacks. There is going to be failures. And actually, failures, we, we use a saying a lot, and, and it's well, and there's no such thing as failure, only feedback. So even when things go wrong, we can learn a lot from it. As long as you're prepared to learn from it, it's not really a failure. And the way I word that is I had to, I had to learn to lose a lot of 800-meter races before I could ever win an 800-meter race. By losing those races, I made all the mistakes that, that, that every 800-meter runner will make. And uh, I made all them. And I made some of them in front of cameras, you know, and I had to apologize afterwards. I had to apologize my coach for some of the stuff ups I did, but I made those mistakes. And every time I made a mistake, actually, it's not really a mistake if I'm learning from it because it's progression. Um, so yeah, those are the three things really got to enjoy what you do. You've got to, um, what was the second one? I forgot what that was already there. Uh, it was there was resilience, enjoy what you got to do. And um... I can't oh, step out of your comfort zone. Oh, that's it, yes. Yeah. So, so these are the three things. You have to enjoy what you do. You've got to be prepared to step outside your comfort zone. And then the magical word, resilience. You've got to be prepared that there is going to be setbacks. There's going to be, I won't use the word failure because it's not a failure if you're learning from it. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be ups. There's going to be downs. There's going to be highs. There's going to be lows. But it's all part of the journey. Um, and those are the three things. No, it's been amazing. And I... We could go on. Uh, I could, you know, we've met before and it was enjoyable then. It's just as enjoyable now. Hopefully we'll have a chance later on this year to uh, to meet up again um, at a future event. But it's been it's been utterly inspiring listening to you, um, Dan. It really has. Thank you so much um, for, for everything. The best of luck um, with everything Thank that you. you that you do this year. Hopefully uh, we'll get back to... Um, to peak being having audiences and, and crowds in the you know in the stands and around the track sooner rather than later. But Danny, thank you for joining us on the High Performance Podcast Squad. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and uh, we'll speak with you soon. Cheers, Simon. Thanks a lot. Enjoyable.